Chapter 5 Book 1 of Rookwood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book 1 Chapter 5 Sir Reginald Rookwood A king who changed his wives as easily as a woman changes her dress. He threw aside the first, cut off the second's head, the third he disemboweled. As for the fourth, he pardoned her, and simply turned her out of doors, but to make matters even, cut off the head of number five. Victor Hugo, Marie Tudor From the house to its inhabitants, the transition is natural. Besides the connection between them, there were many points of resemblance, many family features in common. There was the same melancholy grandeur, the same character of romance, the same fantastical display. Nor were the secret passages peculiar to the one, wanting to the history of the other. Both had their mysteries. One blot there was in the otherwise proud escutcheon of the Rookwoods, that dimmed its splendour and made pale its pretensions. Their sun was eclipsed in blood from its rising to its meridian, and so it seemed would be its setting. This foul reproach attached to all the race, none escaped it. Traditional rumours were handed down from father to son throughout the county, and, like all the rumours, had taken to themselves wings and flown abroad. Their crimes became a byword. How was it they escaped punishment? How came they to evade the hand of justice? Proof was ever wanting. Justice was ever baffled. They were a stern and stiff-necked people, of indomitable pride and resolution, with, for the most part, force of character sufficient to enable them to breast difficulties and dangers that would have overwhelmed ordinary individuals. No quality is so advantageous to its possessor as firmness, and the determined energy of the Rookwoods bore them harmless through a sea of trouble. Besides, they were wealthy, lavish even to profusion, and gold will do much, if skilfully administered. Yet, despite all this, a dark, ominous cloud settled over their house, and men wondered when the vengeance of heaven, so long delayed, would fall and consume it. Possessed of considerable landed property, once extending over nearly half the west riding of Yorkshire, the family increased in power and importance for an uninterrupted series of years until the outbreak of that intestine discord which ended in the civil wars, when the espousal of the royalist party, with sword and substance, by Sir Ralph Rookwood, the then lord of the mansion, a dissolute, depraved personage, who, however, had been made a knight of the bath of the coronation of Charles I, ended in his own destruction at Naseby, and the wreck of much of his property, a loss which the gratitude of Charles II, on his restoration, did not fail to make good to Sir Ralph's youthful heir, Reginald. Sir Ralph Rookwood left two sons, Reginald and Alan. The fate of the latter was buried in obscurity. It was even a mystery to his family, he was, it said, 
a youth of much promise and of gentle manners, who, having made an imprudent match from jealousy, or some other motive, deserted his wife and fled his country. Various reasons were assigned for his conduct. Amongst others, it was stated that the object of Alan's jealous suspicions was his elder brother, Reginald, and that it was the discovery of his wife's infidelity in this quarter which occasioned his sudden disappearance with his infant daughter. Some say he died abroad, others that he had appeared again for a brief space at the hall, but all now concurred in a belief of his decease. Of his child nothing was known. His inconstant wife, after enduring for some years the agonies of remorse, abandoned by Sir Reginald, and neglected by her own relatives, put an end to her existence by poison. That is all that could be gathered of the story, or the misfortunes, of Alan Rookwood. The young Sir Reginald had attended Charles, in the manner of a page, during his exile, and if he could not requite the devotion of the son, by absolutely reinstating the fallen fortunes of the father, the monarch could at least accord him the fostering influence of his favour and countenance, and bestow upon him certain lucrative situations in his household, as an earnest of his good will. And thus much he did. Remarkable for his personal attractions in youth, it is not to be wondered at that we should find the name of Reginald Rookwood recorded in the scandalous chronicles of the day, as belonging to a cavalier of infinite address and discretion, matchless wit, and marvellous pleasantry, and eminent beyond his peers for successes with some of the most distinguished beauties who ornamented that brilliant and voluptuous court. A career of elegant dissipation ended in matrimony. His first match was unpropitious. Foiled in his attempts upon the chastity of a lady of great beauty and high honour, he was rash enough to marry her. Rash, we say, for on that fatal hour all became darkness. The curtain fell upon the comedy of his life to rise no tragic horrors. When passion subsided, repentance awoke, and he became anxious for deliverance from the fetters he had so heedlessly imposed upon himself and on his unfortunate dame. The hapless lady of Sir Reginald was a fair and fragile creature, floating on the eddying current of existence, and hurried in destruction as the summer gossamer is swept away by the rude breeze and lost for ever. So beautiful, so gentle was she, that if sorrow had not made, sorrow more beautiful than beauty's self, it would have been difficult to say whether the charm of softness and sweetness was more to be admired than her faultless personal attractions. But when a tinge of melancholy came, saddening and shading the once smooth and smiling brow, when tears dimmed the blue beauty of those deep and tender eyes, when hot, hectic flushes supplied the place of healthful bloom, and despair took possession of her heart, then was it seen what was the charm of Lady Rookwood, if charm that could have been called which was such a saddening sight to see, and melted the beholder's soul within him. All acknowledged that exquisite as she had been before, the sad, sweet lady was now more exquisite still. Seven moons had waned and flown, seven bitter, tearful moons, and each day Lady Rookwood's situation claimed more soothing attention at the hand of her lord. 
About this time his wife's brother, whom he hated, returned from the Dutch wars. Struck with his sister's altered appearance, he readily divined the cause. Indeed, all tongues were eager to proclaim it to him. Passionately attached to her, Lionel Vavasour implored an explanation of the cause of his sister's griefs. The bewildered lady answered evasively, attributing her woe-begone looks to any other cause than her husband's cruelty, and pressing her brother, as he valued her peace, her affection, never to allude to the subject again. The fiery youth departed. He next sought out his brother-in-law, and taxed him sharply with his inhumanity, adding threats to his upbraidings. Sir Reginald listened, silently and calmly. When the other had finished, with a sarcastic obeisance, he replied, "'Sir, I am much beholden for the trouble you have taken in your sister's behalf, but when she entrusted herself to my keeping, she relinquished, I conceive, all claim on your guardianship. However, I thank you for the trouble you have taken, but, for your own sake, I would venture to caution you against a repetition of interference like the present.' "'And I, sir, caution you,' See that you give heeds to my words, or, by the heaven above us, I will enforce attention to them. You will find me, sir, as prompt at all times to defend my conduct, as I am unalterable in my purposes. Your sister is my wife. What more would you have? Were she a harlot, you should have her back and welcome. The tool is virtuous. Devise some scheme and take her with you hence, so you rid me of her as I am content. Rookwood! "'You are a villain!' and Vavasor spat upon his brother's cheek. Sir Reginald's eyes blazed. His sword started from its scabbard. "'Defend yourself!' he exclaimed, furiously attacking Vavasor. Pass after pass was exchanged. Fierce thrusts were made and parried, faint and appeal. The most desperate and dexterous were resorted to. Their swords glanced like lightning flashes. In the struggle the blades became entangled, there was a moment's cessation. Each glanced at the other with a deadly, inextinguishable hate. Both were admirable masters of the art of defence. Both were so brimful of wrath as to be regardless of consequences. They tore back their weapons. Vavasour's blade shivered. He was at the mercy of his adversary, an adversary who knew no mercy. Sir Reginald passed his rapier through his brother's body. The hilt struck against the ribs. Sir Reginald's ire was kindled, not extinguished by the deed he had done. Like the tiger, he had tasted blood. Like the tiger, he thirsted for more. He sought his home. He was greeted by his wife. Terrified by his looks, she yet summoned courage sufficient to approach him. She embraced his arm. She clasped his hand. Sir Reginald smiled. His smile was cutting as his dagger's edge. "'What ails you, sweetheart?' said he. I know not. Your smile frightens me. My smile frightens you? Fool! Be thankful that I frown not. Oh, do not frown. Be gentle, my Reginald, as you were when I first knew you. Smile not so coldly, but as you did then, that I may, for one instant, dream you love me. Silly wench! There, I do smile. That smile freezes me. Oh, Reginald, could you but know what I have endured this morning on your account? My brother Lionel has been here. Indeed? Nay, look not so. 
he insisted on knowing the reason of my altered appearance. And no doubt you made him acquainted with the cause. You told him your version of the story. Not a word, as I hope to live. A lie! By my truth, no. A lie, I say. He avouched it to me himself. Impossible, he could not. Would not disobey me. Sir Reginald laughed bitterly. He would not, I am sure, give utterance to any scandal, continued Lady Rookwood. You say this but to try me, do you not? Oh, what is this? Your hand is bloody. You have not harmed him. Whose blood is this? Your brother spat upon my cheek. I have washed out the stain, replied Sir Reginald coldly. Then it is his blood, shrieked Lady Rookwood, pressing her hands shuddering before her eyes. Is he dead? Sir Reginald turned away. Stay, she cried, exerting her feeble strength to retain him, and becoming white as ashes. Abide and hear me. You have killed me, I feel, by your cruelty. I am sinking fast, dying. I who loved you, only you. Yes, one besides, my brother, and you have slain him. Your hands are dripping in his blood, and I have kissed them, have clasped them. And now, continued she, with an energy that shook Sir Reginald, I hate you. I renounce you for ever. May my dying words ring in your ears on your deathbed. For that hour will come. You cannot shun that. Then think of him. Think of me. Away, interrupted Sir Reginald, endeavouring to shake her off. I will not away. I will cling to you, will curse you. My unborn child shall live to curse you, to requite you, to visit my wrongs on you and yours. Weak as I am, you shall not cast me off. You shall learn to fear even me. I fear nothing living, much less a frantic woman. Fear the dead, then. There was a struggle, a blow, and the wretched lady sank, shrieking upon the floor. Convulsions seized her. A mother's pain succeeded fierce and fast. She spoke no more, but died within the hour, giving birth to a female child. Eleanor Rookwood became her father's idol her father's bane. All the love he had to bestow was centred in her. She returned it not. She fled from his caresses. With all her mother's beauty, she had all her mother's pride. Sir Reginald's every thought was for his daughter, for her aggrandizement. In vain. She seemed only to endure him, and while his affection waxed stronger and entwined itself round her alone, she withered beneath his embraces, as the shrub withers in the clasping folds of the parasite plant. She grew towards womanhood. Suitors thronged about her, gentle and noble ones. Sir Reginald watched them with a jealous eye. He was wealthy, powerful, high in royal favour, and could make his own election. He did so. For the first time, Eleanor promised obedience to his wishes. They accorded with her own humour. The day was appointed. It came, but with it came not the bride. She had fled with the humblest and the meanest of the pretenders to her land, with one upon whom Sir Reginald supposed she had not designed to cast her eyes. He endeavoured to forget her, and, to all outward seeming, was successful in the effort, but he felt that the curse was upon him. The undying flame scorched his heart. Once, and only once, they met again in France, whither she had wandered. It was a dread encounter, terrible to both, but most so to Sir Reginald. He spoke not of her afterwards. 
Shortly after the death of his first wife, Sir Reginald had made proposals to a dowager of distinction, with a handsome jointure, one of his earlier attachments, and was, without scruple, accepted. The power of the family might then be said to be at its zenith, but for certain untoward circumstances, and the growing influence of his enemies, Sir Reginald would have been elevated to the peerage. Like most reformed spendthrifts, he had become proportionately avaricious, and his mind seemed engrossed in accumulating wealth. In the meantime, his second wife followed her predecessor, dying, it was said, of vexation and disappointment. The propensity to matrimony, always a distinguishing characteristic of the Rookwoods, largely displayed itself in Sir Reginald. Another dame followed, equally rich, younger, and far more beautiful than her immediate predecessor. She was a prodigious flirt, and soon set her husband at defiance. Sir Reginald did not condescend to expostulate. It was not his way. He effectually prevented any recurrence of her indiscretions. She was removed, and with her expired Sir Reginald's waning popularity. So strong was the expression of odium against him, that he thought it prudent to retire to his mansion in the country, and there altogether seclude himself. One anomaly in Sir Reginald's otherwise utterly selfish character was uncompromising devotion to the house of Stuart, and shortly after the abdication of James the Second, he followed that monarch to Saint-Germain, having previously mixed largely in secret political intrigues, and only returned from the French court to lay his bones with those of his ancestry in the family vault at Rookwood. End of chapter 5, book 1